The first Church Times Festival of Poetry was held this month in the picturesque setting of Sarum College in Salisbury Cathedral Close, during one of the finest bank holiday weekends in memory. Speakers included Malcolm Geitz, Michael Simmons-Roberts and Rachel Mann. The festival got underway with a talk by the Canon Chancellor of St Paul's, Mark Oakley, author of The Splash of Words, Believing in Poetry. There is coverage of the festival in this week's Church Times. If you don't already subscribe, you can receive 10 issues for £10. Visit churchtimes.co.uk slash subscribe. We hope you enjoy Mark Oakley's talk. Well, it's uh, a great pleasure to be here, and I'd like to congratulate uh, the organisers of this festival in initiating this weekend and to bring such uh, interesting poets and people uh, together. It's, uh, it's a wonderful thing. So if any of you were at the Broxham Festival uh, earlier this year, you may have heard me make reference to Ian McEwan. And forgive me for quickly repeating the reference I made there, but it helps me into this morning's topic. I'm sometimes asked, you see, as I'm sure you are, who my favourite novelist is. And I find it very hard to answer, of course, but I will always say Ian McEwan is in the top five. And that often gets rather alarmed uh, reactions. He's so dark and gruesome, someone said to me, he should be called Ian Macabre. <laughs> and it's true that some of um, Ian McEwan's work, especially his earlier stories and novels, do have a sort of concentrated dissection of shadowed privacies. It's uh, relentlessly as uh, shocking as a child pulling off the wings of a butterfly. He's got an art of unease, a sort of uh, surgery on the preconceived, on the first impression, on the masks that eat into our faces. And it's true that if you read Ian McEwan, you can wonder if all of us at some level remain orphans for life. There's a homelessness of mind and heart that he exposes. And at Bloxham, I was referring to his latest novel, Nutshell. Now there, you don't have an orphan. What you have is a child in the womb who is the narrator. The title comes from Shakespeare's Hamlet, of course. Oh God, I could be bounded in a nutshell and count myself a king of infinite space were it not that I have bad dreams. And the novel is a reworking of the Hamlet story. The fetus is bounded in the nutshell of the mother's womb and can hear what's happening out there. With her lover, his mother is planning to murder his father. He can hear their plans, but he can't say anything, of course, trapped in there. He can only occasionally give a hard kick. <laughs> trapped in the womb rather than his dreams, this Hamlet suffers his story in reverse. He wonders if he should be born rather than if he should die. He starts with his father's life and goes on to his ghost. He begins in silence but ends in chaos. This is classic McEwan. Here's a few lines from the first page. Fully inverted, not an inch of space to myself, knees crammed against my belly, my thoughts as well as my head are fully engaged. I've no choice. My ear is pressed all day and night against the bloody walls. I listen, make mental notes, and I'm troubled. I'm hearing pillow talk 
of deadly intent. Now, that idea of a developed fetus listening in is not as far-fetched as it might sound. After it's been in the womb for about six months, a baby's little ears and all the pathways inside its head that allow it to hear are fully formed. So it can hear any noises going on around it, and sometimes it's necessary for doctors to check how the baby's doing, and it's very easy to insert a tiny microphone at the same time and to listen in. That way you can hear what the baby can hear. And what does the baby hear in there? Well, the mother's heartbeat, blood sloshing through the veins of the body, tummy rumbles, and the mother's voice. When she speaks, the baby can hear the voice in the distance. It's a bit like how we hear when we put our fingers in our ears, muffled, a bit distant. We might not be able to pick out all the words, but we can certainly hear the rhythms and the intonation. And when the baby's born, you can do another experiment. Uh, researchers put headphones on the tiny ears and play some sounds. So a dog barking, a man's voice, a woman's voice, the mother's voice. And they put a teat into the baby's mouth and wire it up to the counter, a bit like I am at the moment. It's, somebody thought it was my catheter bag, actually. It's, uh, <coughs> and what happens is you put the teat in, into the, the newly born child and the baby sucks away at a steady rate. Then when you play the sound of the dog barking or the man or the woman, the sucking speeds up a bit and then slows down again. But when it hears the mother's voice, it sucks like mad. It recognises her. And this experiment can be done when the baby's just a few hours old. Babies don't have to wait to learn what mummy sounds like. They know already. Now that image is, I hope, a helpful one for what I want to explore as we start this weekend. Why poetry? And as part of a response to that question, I want to explore how life is, in many ways, a constant encounter with muffled realities, and a search, even an adventure, to find ways of recognising those realities in such a way that just from time to time it can even feel as if you've finally met the voice, the truth, that's been out of reach but always very close. Epiphany. What do I mean by muffled realities? Well, I'm referring to those truths that we have intimations of, a partial sense of, an impression of what might be, but coupled with the sense of it being eclipsed, walled off even, beyond our grasp. And of course, you can find this very much in the Christian tradition and its search for the divine. The mystic Meister Eckhart once said that God is like a person hiding in the dark who occasionally coughs and gives himself away. This is not to say that we don't have revelation, but that revelation both reveals and reveals, shows and then takes away, in order that the mystery of God remains. God, as it were, gives us just enough to look for God and never enough to fully find God. R.S. Thomas, such a fast God, always before us and leaving as we arrive. 
metaphors remind us of mystery. And for the Christian, certainty is the opposite of faith because it impedes the journey. It's longing that's the pulse of faith, desire. And if that ever dies, then faith is thinned down. So even communion for the Christian is the food that makes you more hungry for God. Here is the Australian poet Kevin Hart's poem entitled Prayer. And I think it captures something of this longing. O oh, come, in any way you want, in morning sunlight fooling in the leaves, or in thick bouts of rain that soak my head because of what the darkness said. Or come, though far too slowly for my eye to see, like a dark hair that fades to grey, Come with the wind that wraps my house, or winter light that slants upon a page, because the beast is stirring in its cage. Or come in raw and ragged smells of gum leaves dangling down at noon, or in the undertow of love when she's away, because a night creeps through the day. Come as you used to years ago, when I first fell for you, in the deep calm of an autumn morning, beginning with the cooing of a dove, because of love, the lightest love. Or, if that's not your way these days, because of me, because of something dead in me, come like a jagged knife into my gut, because your touch will surely cut. Come, any way you want, but come. So God is that muffled reality due to our limits, to our armours, and God's beyondness and incomprehensibility, the God whom we seek to hear better, see better, love better, whilst knowing that, like Moses, we enter a darkness whenever we enter holy ground. So St. Gregory of Nazianzus describes our life as Christians as beginning after beginning, always beginning, beginning without end. And in all this change and development, all I have at the moment is the muffled sound of the one, like the fetus, in whom I made and live and have my being, the one whose heartbeat I think I can hear in Christ, the one whose blood and life I can feel around me, though I often feel trapped in a nutshell existence. And when we speak of hope, I'm like that baby narrator, wondering what awaits me, what might draw me in. And St Paul talks of seeing dimly, of knowing in part, and of that day when we, he shall understand fully, even as he is understood. And what I believe is that when born into that new reality, I will recognise my parent God's voice. It will be strange and it will be home. Muffled reality of the divine. But we also have a muffled sense of who we are as a person. A person can sit with a therapist or sit in prayer, can be perplexed by their bad decisions, their out-of-reach hurt, their desires, 
and can be aware from time to time of that excessive reality of themselves, that reality that makes itself known in very hidden ways, sometimes riotous, sometimes painful, and which can feel so out of view that even a compass doesn't seem to be much help because it's pretty dark. My own reality, my truth, is there, but it's also muffled to me. I'm longing for some distillation, some hard-won clarity, the authentic arrival of my voice. And when it comes, it does indeed feel like an awakening, even a birth. I'm sure many of you will know the American poet Mary Oliver's poem, The Journey, but it expresses exactly what I think I'm trying to express here. One day, you finally knew what you had to do and began. Though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice, though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles, mend my life, each voice cried, but you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do. Though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, though their melancholy was terrible, it was already late enough and a wild night and the road full of fallen branches and stones. But little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds and there was a new voice which you slowly recognised as your own that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life you could save. And then there's the muffled reality of, well, reality. What I mean is that reality is so excessive, so full, so expansive, so uncontained, and yet our perceptions of it, our conceptions, our systems of thought, all do their best to contain, control, size it all up into definitions and literalisms, limited and partial takes on things, hardening into certainties and self-reflections. So another American poet, John Barr, in his very recent collection, Dante in China, has this poem called The Nature of Knowing that points us to how our minds go native very quickly to the maps that we inherit. Before first light, the first, first light, more night than not, when what you know is still your own. In minutes, it will be too late. Shape and colour make the strange familiar. An hour from now, the sun will flood the trees with certainties, demanding to be understood. The agency of objects will insist, and your life as intuition for this day will be lost. What muffles our world, of course, is often the narrative of the world we are living by, what you might call the dominant version 
of reality. Technological, electronic, economic, uh, consumerist, greed, alienation, despair, amnesia, brutality, all shaping the world. And that dominant normative view of finance or sexuality or order an uncritical acceptance of the centrality of the market, of aggression, this gladiatorial combat that you see every time you turn on television, this energy of life, supposedly, all eating into our lives, tiring us out into jaundiced versions of what we might be. And so people of faith and people of poetry sing a new version of reality, a subversion of reality, a subversion, a counterpoint. Every faith-filled, hope-filled, love-filled, liturgical act, gesture, word, dream is part of that subversion of the dominant reality, flying low beneath the radar surveillance of the dominant. As Walter Brueggemann puts it, when the truth is told, a new world remains possible. A muffled God, a muffled me, a muffled world, and yet all beautiful, enticing, inviting, excessive realities, which when heard, transform, liberate, reorientate. And that's why poetry why we need the poets. The poets are the antennae of the alive. The poets, you see, first of all, remind us of the importance of difficulty. They use language and space and sound to help us unlearn the world in order to discover it. They dislocate us to help us reimagine what is there before us. So the poet and the person of faith do have things in common. Each distrusts first impressions. Each has a war on against quick clarity. Each relishing and respecting the excess is concerned with what you might call the immense intimacies and the intimate immensities of our world and of our hearts. Each believes that difficulty is important because it pushes our contours into freshness into the momentary open clearing in a life that can be a perplexing dark forest. And each, I believe, understands that words are not ultimately for information, but for formation, for human becoming. Each believes that faith or poetry, or in our case maybe both of them, have that potential to change the full stop that's hardened into our lives into a comma. And in their exploring of the muffled realities, the poet and the person of faith share a belief that language matters. They believe that language is, or should be, a carrier of meaning. That words become flesh. That words make or break. That our languages should be respected and never abused or cheapened because human lives will become cheapened as a consequence. And to pursue this idea, what I want to do is briefly look at a phenomenon that might be telling as a final uh, way into this weekend. I want to ask why it is 
that many priests and ministers are poets, wondering whether the faith they journey with, their pastoral, even therapeutic skills quite often, and poetry are all connected in some creative tension for them. Last year, I had the pleasure of being part of the R.S. Thomas Festival held in Abadaron, where Thomas had served as the vicar. It was a weekend of Thomas tribute, a great R.S. fest, <laughs> where every aspect of that great priest poet was explored, and I was delighted to be asked to give a talk, but that completely fizzled out when I was told I was following Rowan Williams. <laughs> That's quite a warm-up act you've got there, said one local wag. <laughs> and, of course, the former Archbishop of Canterbury stood up and gave a talk that said absolutely everything that needed to be said <laughs> without one note in front of him. By the time the Q&A arrived, I was busily trying to work out how I could get out of my talk. A migraine, I wondered. <laughs> or perhaps diarrhoea of projectile proportions might convince them. But then someone asked a question that distracted me. A woman asked Rowan uh, what, um, what R.S. had been like as a preacher. Rowan said he'd never had the fortune of hearing him preach and couldn't really comment. A man at the back suddenly put his hand up. He said, oh, Elsie here was in his congregation. <laughs> She'll know. All eyes turned to the elderly Elsie in silent anticipation as wisdom from Delphi was about to be received. You heard R.S. preach? asked Rowan. Oh, yes, I did, she said. Often? Oh, yes. Every Sunday for 12 years. Rowan nodded. And what was he like? Oh, she said, dire. <laughs> I love the two syllables of that word that came through in Abadaron. Every priest in the room heaved a private sigh of relief. <laughs> Thank goodness he was bad at something. <laughs> of course, R.S. Uh, was one of many British poet priests. Uh, some of them are here with us uh, in the line of Herbert Dunn and Hopkins and Herrick and Sutherland, Rowan Williams, Malcolm, Rachel, David, Scott, and so on. There's so many. What is it, I wonder, that does draw some clergy to this language of poetry? Um, well, the former Dean of St. Paul's, John Dunn, said that the effectiveness of a preacher lies not in their wit or their cleverness. The effectiveness of a preacher lies, he said, in their nearness. How near, how close they feel to those who are listening. Is this a human being like them? And the parish priest or minister, of course, lives amongst his or her people, leading a congregation, befriending a wider community, being there when there's a tragedy or something's lost, something's celebrated. That nearness, being in tune with the realities of human lives, of the complexities of shared living, of the environment and currents that are affecting us day by day, that's all 
a priest's business, trying to stay awake and alert to our too easy fluences, our avoidances, our bruises, to speak authentic words as a pastor. You know, pastors are not there just to add insight to injury. <laughs> they are there to look for a language that dispels illusion without leaving you disillusioned. Helping people think in a language in which they had never thought before. To reimagine. And <clears throat> I think, as uh, Wallace Stevens, I don't know if you enjoy Wallace Stevens' poetry, I'm drawn to him more and more, but he once said that we ought to like poems the same way as children like snow. That air, the stark, clear, striking, warm chill of poetry, where we can see our own breath, as it were, and immerse ourselves in this world reimagined, a truancy from the prosaic, the surface, is why many a priest, I think, reaches for the pen or opens the book of poems. Like Celan's image of poetry as a message in a bottle, or Graves' notion of it as stored magic. Poetry promises more of you at the end than at the beginning. That nearness to what matters as human is exactly the quality I think so admired in the poets I mentioned. The priests and the poets' nearness to human complexity and chaos, to secrets and the things that we know but as yet have no words for, brings them very close. Here is the very short poem by David Scott, uh, written in Juice of Lemon, it's called. Some poems I write in ink, and they get written with a lot of furrowing of the brow, and often miss. But some I write in juice of a lemon, quickly, in my heart, and hope that one day someone's warmth will iron the secrets into poems with effortless art. Ironing the secrets into hearts means that the priest is concerned with the nearness of our language, wanting words that are not just learned, but felt. Goodness me, if you ever hear preachers, says he now, wondering why he's going this way when he's preaching tomorrow, <laughs> but when you hear preachers, sometimes you feel they're using a language they've learned and that they don't feel, and that distances you straight away. But this is not an easy time for words. Um, you know full well what's happening politically with words. We have some world leaders who campaign in graffiti and then govern in tweets. <laughs> they uh, you listen to the words they're using. You, you don't hear much talk of people anymore. You hear individuals, losers, swarms, sad failures. They're all making this world one of competitors, not citizens, consumers, not communities. And as somebody has said, this is leading now to a world in which if you're not at the table, you're probably on the menu. Nations at the end of the day are largely the stories they feed themselves, and if fed lies, they will suffer the consequences in time. Words become flesh. So, if you are a person of faith, you should be reverencing the sacramentality of language and never treating it lightly. 
The problem is that sadly I think the church is reflecting this poor use of words, the superficiality, the clinical vocabularies of the newsroom or the boardroom. And so what we're often getting when you hear uh, people of faith in, in the public arena is a, a rather unattractive choice. They can either sound like ignorance on fire or intelligence on ice. Neither is very attractive. This is another reason why clergy, I think, often become poets, because as well as being often local to a community, they're also part of an institution, an establishment, an organisation called the church. That's not, for all of us, a very comfortable role. It's my experience that at the moment many people, especially younger people, feel there's a sort of wisdom deficit. They're actually quite serious about religion, about spirituality, and I don't mean that word, by the way, like a lot of people using it at the moment as if it's referring to a sort of massage while listening to wind chimes. <laughs> spirituality is a horrible thing. In the Christian tradition, spirituality is a horrible thing. It's an assault on your ego. It's uncomfortable. It's horrid. It's not getting more oil slapped on your back. But... Uh, I think these people who are drawn to the seriousness of spirituality uh, are actually finding, of course, the church often to appear too secular, too much reflecting what they're trying to escape from, the bland leading the bland. Now, to imagine that its clergy are immune from feeling this sort of discomfort would be very naive. Many clergy long for more poetry in their church. They long for a reclaiming of mystery, of the beauty, of the humane. They know that at the evening of life we will be judged on love, not our systematic theology. They long for a humbler church, more concerned to be kind than to be right. They, and why don't I just show myself and say, we long for a church that imaginatively commits itself to a God who's not the object of knowledge, but the cause of wonder. And that means accepting, as poetry does, that some things are far, far, far too important to be literalistic over. Love and God, for instance. And that therefore any fundamentalism is to Christianity what paint by numbers is to art. Such priests understand their religion as poetry plus, not science minus. The amount of people walk into a church, I think, who think we're presenting them with science minus. It's poetry plus. Now... Um, I really do believe that the church is not the ecclesiastical equivalent of the sealed knot, dressing up on a Sunday morning to reenact a former world. It is not the organisational equivalent of the character in the Goon Show sketch who always knew what time it was because someone had once written it down for him on a piece of paper. <laughs> it's a community trying to settle around a fountain from which wisdom emerges with patience and prayer where we accept we are given just enough. And one of the tests of faith, as opposed to bad religion, is whether it stops you ignoring things. Faith is most fully itself when it opens your eyes and uncovers. The test of faith is how much more it lets you see and how much it stops you denying, resisting, ignoring aspects of what's real.
poetry has the same testing criteria. Poetry and faith are both disciplines of attentiveness because poetry and faith both know that unawareness is the root of all evil. Unawareness is the root of all evil. So they both will resist, paraphrase, and on good days, I think, poets and people of faith pray the same prayer, lead us not into interpretation. <laughs> I will draw to an end. My last reason as to why priest or minister might be drawn to poetry is that it is the language that most feels like a soul language. From the moment the music starts in a service, you sing a poem called a hymn, you recite a poem called a psalm, you pray prayers of metaphors, similes, figurative allusions, you are immersed, you are living in a poem. No wonder poetry feels natural. As I've said in the splash of words, if I try to get to the heart of my belief, I think that everybody's been given a great gift called your being, and we're asked to give a gift back called our becoming. Put it another way, God loves you just as you are. God loves you so much, God doesn't want you to stay like that. Therefore, we need a language in our faith that helps us to become. We need, and the stories of the poet Christ are this, a language that doesn't set out to answer questions as to question answers. We need a language that enlarges hearts, minds, the humane and the understanding of the divine. And poetry is often hard. It's that difficulty again, important, because life's hard, belief is hard. Poetry and true spirituality know that only difficulty will ultimately change us apart, of course, along with love. Religious types easily slip into thinking language imitates or reproduces reality. What I say just is. Actually, the poets remind us that language doesn't do that. Language represents reality. They allow us to see that language may be truthful even when it's not descriptive in the strictest sense. R.S. Thomas again, poetry is that which arrives at the intellect by way of the heart. So, summary. My guess is that there are people here who would call themselves believers in God in one shape or another. Others here will not believe in God and others will not be sure one way or the other. Quite a few will probably sympathise with Graham Greene when he said, the trouble is I don't quite believe my unbelief. Some will, like Julian Barnes, want to say, I don't believe in God, but I do miss him. And maybe most of us are a mixture of all the above, day in, day out. My other guess is that for all that range of commitment, that daily landscape we live in of questioning and positioning, there's something most of us do feel drawn to in this room, to cherish words, their ability to form us and the world we're making. People of faith and poets must all together, in our explorations of the muffled realities, do everything in our power to ensure words remain fresh and honest and true. The person of faith believes that God is in this world as poetry is in the poem. 
The poet believes that reality is so excessive that only poetry can touch those immensities and intimacies. That a poem's work sends ripples out towards your shore, shifting your sand and your hard stones. Why poetry? Because we can believe that if human beings do have a soul language, a language of repair, then this is it. And that the poet's work is so vital that should it ever be lost, the soul, and maybe even the world itself, would be deeply endangered. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode. Thank you.